episode 190 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Jason Pinter, whose Hideaway was just published. Welcome, Jason. Hi, thank you for having me. Rachel Marin, uh, the protagonist of your novel, is unusual in, in a lot of ways. Uh, she's a victim whose very life and the lives of her children might depend on keeping an extremely low profile. But she's someone who steps up when she sees the potential for a miscarriage of justice. And I found it a really fascinating tightrope that might have presented some challenges when you were writing the character. Absolutely. I think that was the the balance I wanted to take, is that Rachel is somebody who is a mother first and foremost. She has two small children to take care of. She's not somebody who can kind of go out and fight crime, stay out till four in the morning, getting into fights or doing whatever. She has to go home and, you know, she has to make dinner. She has to make sure her kids get on the school bus. Um, but at the same time, uh, as we learn early on in the book, the system let her and her family down and something terrible happened. And because of that, she doesn't tend to trust people. And when she sees a miscarriage of justice and there's a woman who's found dead and she believes the same thing is going to happen, she believes that if she doesn't step in and get involved, then this woman is going to essentially fall prey in the same way that she did. And she can't let that happen. So how does Rachel balance being something of a crime fighter with also being uh, a mother and a protector? You know, I, I like the character a lot. And, and it's clear that she's Thank hurting you. from the trauma that you mentioned. Yes. But I couldn't help thinking that she's also deflecting, which strikes me as a very real reaction. And once again, you know, makes her a very complex character. Yeah, very much. I think that's one of the the keys to to understanding Rachel is that even though it's clear that she's strong and smart and and intuitive, she's very, very broken in a lot of ways. Um, And I think... She after after what she's endured, she goes through this incredible regiment to sort of hone her mind and hone her body to be able to protect herself and her children. But she never really fully deals with the interior trauma that, that she's experienced, and that's something that she has to deal with as the story goes on. That's something that her children have to deal with, and it almost doesn't even occur to her until the story until the story goes on that this is something that needed to be taken care of because she's so been so focused on the external that she hasn't really taken care of the internal. And that's a real, uh, a real problem for her. The, the press letter literature that I received mentioned that one of the sparks for this book was uh, a parent's and specifically a mother's protective instinct. And I don't know who said it when I looked it up, there were a numerous uh, attributions, but having a child is, is sort of to have your heart go walking outside of your body. And as a mother, I think that's especially true for mothers, but I wanted to get your input because you did write uh, uh, from the point of view of a female character. Yes, you know, I started writing Hideaway shortly after our first daughter was born, about two and a half years ago, and there was sort of one moment that crystallized it for me, and it was when our daughter was about six months old, and, you know, we had a, a monitor where we could see and hear her bedroom to make sure that she was sleeping and breathing, the same thing every parent does. And after about six months, you know, she was sleeping pretty well. There were no issues. But I remember my wife used to stay up all night to watch the monitor to make sure that she was healthy. And I think at one point I said to her, you know, like, she's fine. Let her, you know, she's sleeping. You should get some sleep. 
And she said to me exactly that, you know, you don't know what it's like to have something grow inside of you, then have it exist outside of your body and to not know what's happening to them. And that just sort of crystallized for it in a lot of ways, just the, the protective nature of a parent and especially a mother. Um, I'm, I'm a very hands-on father. I love my kids to death. I would do anything for them. But I do think there's a bond between a, a mother and a child that is just different and more intimate in some ways uh, because, uh, because of that, that, that little bond. Um, and so I just I thought it would be interesting, more interesting to write it from a female character. I think that bond was hugely important. And I wanted to sort of explore the relationship between Rachel and her children um, I didn't want it to just be a thriller where she's going out fighting crime, but how does she relate to her children? How do they relate to her? And how has she helped them deal or not deal with the trauma they've experienced too? And as part of her self-preservation, and, and we have to sort of dance around this because uh, we don't want to introduce a huge spoiler, uh, <laughs> but as part of her self-preservation, in addition to moving uh, from the East Coast to Ashby, Illinois, which is sort of a low-key, small city, uh, mm-hmm. Rachel becomes conversant in forensics, you know, as you mentioned, as, as part of the honing of her mind. Uh, to the point, though, where she's able to determine before the police that what looks like a suicide, which opens the book, this, this accident or this uh, event, uh, isn't. But one of the things I liked about Rachel especially was that in spite of her hard-earned expertise, <clears throat> she's not infallible. Uh, right. and, and once again, I think it might be easier to write a character who never makes a mistake, you know, like a super superhero. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I wanted Rachel to be infallible. Uh, she's not perfect. And she's, like, like we said, she's deflected a lot of the emotions. And she, even if she thinks what she's doing is is for the right reasons. She makes a lot of mistakes, just like any of us. I didn't want her to be sort of a, she's not Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman. She can't go out and, you know, get into fist fights and come away unscathed. Uh, she endures physical trauma. She endures emotional trauma. I, I think to me that gives a, a deeper reading experience for the reader because they know if Rachel gets into trouble, if, if, she get, if there's danger there, she could, she might not walk out of it. Um, she's not going to, you know, you know, the bad, the bad guys have better aim than they do in star Wars movies. Um, so it was important to me that Rachel felt realistic that even if she was getting herself into danger, we really did know that, uh, you know, she couldn't just walk, walk things off. Well, I felt that like there was a tremendous amount of research done for this book. And I'm always curious about location. Uh, you have, um, as far as I can tell, Ashby, Illinois, is a fictional town. Um, it is, yes. And I'm, I'm wondering why you chose this particular location. Sort of, um, it seems to be a bit of a far-flung uh, suburb of Chicago, far enough that it's its mm-hmm. own entity, um, a mid-sized city. And what about? This geographic location, aside from the fact that you needed a bridge and a river, and that's not a spoiler because it happens at the very beginning of the book, <laughs> uh, in order to tell the story. 
Oh, I hope we didn't ruin anything. Somebody's listening to this and saying, "Oh, there's a bridge in there." I don't want to. I don't want. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we sort of Rachel talks about this in the book a little bit when she's sort of figuring out what her next step is because you know she and her family endure something terrible and they live in a in a more affluent city, and they're thinking, where do they go to restart all their lives? And Rachel says, you know, she can't go to a big city. She can't go where somewhere where there's a lot of, there's a lot of media. She can't go somewhere where there's going to be people on top of her. Uh, but she also can't go into like, uh, the dust bowl. She can't go into the middle of nowhere. Um, she needs somewhere that has relatively good access to transportation in case they need to get out of there. So, you know, there's O'Hare, there's a, you know, she's near Peoria. Um, and it was just, it was the kind of place where she could kind of get lost. Um, the kind of place where neighbors minded their own business, the kind of place where, you know, you might know people at the local general store, but it's not a major media market. It's not a large city. It's not the kind of place that people talk about a lot often. And it was just very conducive to Rachel flying under the radar very much. Um, and so, you know, as you sort of read the book, and even if you, you, you know, this one actually is something I touch on in, in the book that I'm working on right now, which is the, ne- the next book in the series, uh, there are more specific reasons as to how she exactly ended up in Ashby, Illinois. And the, uh, you know, Ashby is a large enough city, though, that it has a police force. It's, it's doesn't rely mm-hmm. on the county sheriff to do its. Uh, oh yeah, it's not a, it's not one of those like you know, five hundred, you know, population five hundred, and then you know, somebody has a heart attack and somebody paints the 500 over with 499. <laughs> it's not that small. <laughs> and and the, the police force, the Ashby police force, uh, they don't exactly welcome her input. Uh, and, and this is the case, especially in this one pair of detectives, uh, Detective Leslie Talley and her partner, Detective John Serrano. Serrano becomes a bit more taken with Rachel, but I, I thought you might want to discuss those two characters because they're, they're a bit of a counterpoint to, uh, Rachel. Absolutely. You know, I, I knew that there were going to be sort of two concurrent investigations going on. One being Rachel's sort of freelance look into this, into this murder, but then also the actual police investigation. And one thing I didn't want to do was have the cops essentially be stock characters. I didn't want them to just be obstacles to be like, oh, the cops are getting in Rachel's way. I wanted them to be real characters with real backstories. But more importantly, I didn't want them to be villains. And in a way, they're right. Like you, like you said, they're skeptical of Rachel, Tally a little more so than Serrano, but they have every right to be. I mean, here's this woman showing up at crime scenes and wanting to get involved in a murder despite having no official forensic training, despite having no law enforcement background whatsoever. So if you were a cop and this woman just keeps showing up to investigate a murder, you'd absolutely say, what is she doing? She has no right to be here. And so I wanted the reader to understand their perspective, that they're not just doing this because they're a means to an end for a story, but because if you're looking at Rachel, if you don't know who Rachel is and you saw her doing this, you would think the same thing that they do, which is, Here's this crazy woman. Why is she showing up? Is there maybe a reason that she's doing this? Right. So I think I wanted the reader to see it from their perspective, too, that, you know, they're both very rational human people. They're not crazy people. They're not evil. Um, So if they're going to be skeptical of Rachel, maybe we should be, too, a little bit. Right. And and we see that as they sort of go around town. And they have, I think they have, especially the beginning of the book, they have a legitimate reason to to look askance, maybe not to be suspicious. I don't know if that. I don't know if there's enough evidence to be suspicious, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just more that you know, if you if you read about police investigations, 
not necessarily people who are suspects, but they're always people that are sort of hangers on, that are that sort of hang around crime scenes that want to get too involved. It's like when a, a police uh, police hotline goes uh, for tips. You know, 50,000 people call up offering tips, and maybe one of those people actually knows something. But all the other rest of the people, they want to be involved tangentially. And Rachel may just be one of those people to them. She's not necessarily a suspect, but she's somebody, one of these crazy people that just has to insinuate themselves into a crime for whatever reason. And they do consider her like that, even if she may have a little more meat to her bones. And the fact that she sort of showed up from nowhere in in a town that has some uh, fairly established roots, especially with the families that she's dealing with, um, both the woman who was killed and uh, other parts of her family and friends, um, it, it's there's there's reason for that uh, looking askance. There absolutely is. There absolutely is. You know. It's- I, I, as much as I wanted Ashby to sort of be a bit of an under-the-radar under radar city, like any city, uh, you know, it has its skeletons in the closet. I sort of, you know, I, I did an interview the other day with a, a – I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. I did an interview uh, with a local Hoboken uh, website, and one of the things that I find fascinating about Hoboken is that, you know, it's sort of this – you know, a lot of people think of it as sort of like New York West – um, without the history, but like there's a very dark undercurrent to Hoboken. You know, there was a the murder of John Gotti was planned probably about five or six blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, there was a lot of mob connections in the city, so even the sleepiest town where sort of everybody knows your name may have a little bit of a, of a darkness that that you know comes up every now and then. And I wanted to be clear that. Ashby wasn't wasn't just sort of like this this castle on a hill. There was a dark a dark side to it too. I always think of Frank Sinatra when I think of Hoboken. So. Oh yeah, well, I mean, I, I my wife and I moved to Hoboken about five years ago, and you know, I, we live near Sinatra Drive, and there, you know, every five every five feet there's, there's something something to Sinatra. <laughs> Even though apparently he didn't he didn't really he only came back to Hoboken I think once after he moved away as a teenager. So when he was alive, I don't think he was a big fan of the of the town that much. Um. It, back back to uh, Hideaway. Um, all the principal characters in this story, and that's Rachel Serrano and Tally, do have baggage. And the baggage revolves around children. And I think that that binds them even if they don't realize it. And so was that intentional or am I just, you know, plucking? Oh, very, very much so. Very, very much so. Especially with Serrano and, and Rachel. And like you said, um, Serrano maybe has a bit of a bit of a more soft spot for Rachel, and it's because he endured a trauma of his own um, uh, that we learn as the book goes on. And because of that, I think when he first meets Rachel, he knows that here's somebody who's broken in a lot of ways because he's been broken, um, and he can recognize some of the uh, the flaws, the personalities, and like you said, even some of the deflection. Um, Tally has her own relationship to children, but she hasn't endured the kind of trauma that Rachel and Serrano has. So I think she's able to look at Rachel from a bit more of a skeptical perspective. But Serrano uh, endured something terrible that relates to his child. And I do think because of that, he can see some of that brokenness in Rachel and it draws them to each other. And uh, you touched on this, so I, I had a feeling as I got to the end of the book that we'll be seeing more of Rachel Marin, Joan Serrano, and Leslie Talley, so I'm, I'm happy that I'm right. 
Me, me too. I, I love those characters. Um, you know, I just turned in the, the last edits for the, the next book in the series, which will be out early next year. Uh, Serato, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but they're, they're characters I enjoy writing. That's not to say they'll all stick around forever because, I mean, hey, they're, they're in danger. They're, they, they, they work dangerous jobs. But uh, I, I think there's a lot more to explore with these characters, both in their own lives and how they relate to each other. And, of course, uh, not to introduce too much of a spoiler, but there are some things left hanging at the end uh of of the book that uh are fertile ground for uh more stories so that's that's always a nice little uh present to leave a reader so thank you yeah you know i I wanted you know i think anytime you write a series you have to make sure that each book the main story wraps up in a satisfactory way that there's sort of a, a closed loop but at the same time there are going to be questions that are unanswered, and I'd like to answer them in the next book, the one after that, to, to keep readers guessing a little bit, to keep readers wanting to explore your world a little bit more. And uh, now you're off on your book tour. Uh, I also saw that in your in your press material. So, I uh, congratulations on that. And uh, you know, thank you. I think Thanks. it's I think it's a great start to a series. So, congratulations. Thank you very much. I, I worked very hard on this. It's a. I love this book. I love these characters. It's. Uh, it's the first book that I that I wrote as a parent. Um, so it, it holds a special place in my heart, and it means a lot to me that the readers are enjoying it. Well, thanks again for joining us, Jason, and I wish you tremendous luck with this book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.